Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. And a jolly good morning and a happy Monday to you. I'm Kathy Kaler. I will be your host for the next hour for the Dischem Medical Monday. Uh, today is the 29th. Can you believe this is the 29th of August? How did we get here? Okay, look, it's been a long and very, very miserable winter, which only gives me more joy to tell you what a beautiful day it is in Johannesburg. And uh, I hope that you got time to enjoy the sunshine this weekend. So, to skim Medical Monday, there's a time when we really deep dive issues around health, around our bodies, understanding our bodies better so that we can take better care of them and lead more productive beautiful, healthy lives. It's one thing living to be 120, but who wants to do that if you're ill? Hashtag just saying. So if you'd like to get in touch with me or my guest, I'm going to give you the contact details in a minute. And uh, so get a pen and paper in case you don't know them. But my guest this morning is Dr. Brad Mervitz. He's an endocrinologist. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for no stranger me. to High FM. <laughs> That's right. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? It feels like a gazillion years since we last saw each other. It has been at least two, three years. Yeah, but the pandemic, like it's stolen time from us. So six years in COVID, in COVID years, it's six years. Yeah, six years, <laughs> 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, so uh, we're going to be talking about endocrinology. So the endocrine system, that's your kidneys, it's your hormones, it's everything that regulates the different systems within our body. It's part of homeostasis, right? It, it's, that's homeostasis. Yes, yeah, so endocrinology yeah. is concerned with the study of hormones and hormonal disorders. Yes. So it keeps your body ticking over. Yes, exactly. And we want to, sometimes we need it to tick fast and sometimes we need it to tick slow and sometimes we need it to tick with love and sometimes we need to tick, tick without love. And uh, we're going to be talking about all these different hormones. We're going to be talking about infertility. We're going to be talking about menopause. We're going to be talking about the responsibility of or the impact of the endocrine system on osteoporosis. That's something that isn't talked about a lot. So if you would like to get in touch, if you've got any questions, I'm giving you access to this unbelievable endocrinologist specialist. He practices at Donald Gordon Medical Center. And uh, here's how you get in touch. You can send me an SMS on 34519. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50. You can also send me a telegram if you have the app. And that number is 061-895-1019. Or you can send an email on air at com. You don't have to sign your name, but if you do, I'll mention it. If you don't sign your name, I'll know that you want it to be anonymous. Where else are you going to be able to access an endocrinologist, get all your answers, all your questions answered, pardon me, without having to pay for an appointment? I mean, really. <laughs> Who doesn't love that? So my guest today, Dr. Brad Mervitz, and I do have to apologize, the sound of my voice, uh, just recovering from this that terrible makes, flu. That makes two of us. Oh, so we can just croak along. Oh, wait. No, we don't want to be croaking anything. This is the Disc Medical Monday, and I'm inviting you to join me. We'll be 
right back. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. I'm Kathy Kayla. I'm your host on the Discam Medical Monday for the next hour. And my guest is endocrinologist Dr. Brad Mervitz. Dr. Mervitz, can you just give us a bird's eye view of the endocrine system? Because really we want, to, we want to know when we should be seeing an endocrinologist. What are the early telltale signs? So let's start with building the geography. Sure. Okay. So it's important to remember hormones are merely chemical messengers. They just tell our body how to act at what time and in what way. This is controlled by a number of glands in the body. Primarily the pituitary gland, which is, I always say, the conductor of the orchestra, right? That, that, that tells the body how it needs to function. So it will provide a hormonal stimulus to other glands that will then secrete their hormones, which control metabolic activities and right. just the body functioning in general. And the pituitary sits in the middle of the brain. That's it. Between your eyes, just a little bit recessed in your skull. There's a nice little cavity for it there, and it's, it's quite protected. Under stimuli from the environment, from medications, from food, all these kinds of things, it will secrete its hormones. And obviously, depending on the particular gland that is impacted in disease, that will manifest with the symptoms. So the commonest thing we'd see is a thyroid problem, for example. Primary thyroid diseases occur in the thyroid itself. But under rare circumstances, there may be pituitary issues that can impact on thyroid function. Similarly, adrenal function is, is controlled by the pituitary gland. So... There can be a small growth in the pituitary that causes the adrenals to over-secrete hormones, or there can be a problem in the adrenals of the pituitary that would prevent it from secreting cortisol and the other hormones from the adrenal glands. An excess of growth hormone would be produced by the pituitary gland that results in a condition called acromegaly in adults or gigantism in children. So there are a number of different disease entities and states that can arise from it. Abnormalities in FSH and LH production, which would control ovarian or testicular function, can result in infertility or uh, disorders of sexual maturation or function. Um, and so really, depending on the organ that's affected, that would then present with the symptoms, and that's when one would need to seek uh, treatment or seek help for it. So it's they're quite diverse in terms of their manifestations. Sometimes people just just know something is off. In their bodies, they can feel something is off. Sometimes it's obvious. Someone with an overactive thyroid, for example, may have unexplained weight loss and agitation, anxiety, tremors, palpitations. It's a very dramatic presentation. Someone with an underactive thyroid may have unexplained weight gain, lethargy, fatigue. So if, if a patient feels something is not right, generally going to a GP as a first step is a good idea. They can always see, is this a problem? Is this not a problem? Perhaps do some preliminary blood work and then, if necessary, refer on to the endocrinologist. No, it's so important what you're saying is that the patient will feel that something's not right. Mm. I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine who was who kept going to see doctors and going to see doctors, and the doctors were running tests, and it wasn't iron, and it wasn't this and wasn't that. And when it came down to testing testosterone, male testosterone mm. levels were very, very low, and that's something that a lot of men don't talk about. Mm. I mean, men in general are Poor seekers of healthcare. Yeah, but uh, give them what flu once, and and you know, yeah, then we all know how that ends. That's why we've got wives to take care of us. <laughs> <laughs> but it is true, it's true, and and these things are not spoken about, particularly in men with low testosterone hypogonadism. Now it's gaining a lot of traction. There's a lot more information out there about it, but uh, historically it has been a large problem. And the other the other issue, of course, is the impact on lifestyle on the endocrine system, and so sometimes. And uh, a poor lifestyle, for example, can result in low testosterone 
in men may result in abnormal hormonal levels in women associated with polycystic ovarian syndrome as well. And so these are all things that can impact. And so there's this interplay between environment, uh, both internal and external. And uh, that then manifests. And so sometimes the difficulty is teasing out what is organic disease and what is lifestyle. And so sometimes there's challenges. Often I have people coming to me convinced there's an endocrine problem. We and do sometimes the we lie to ourselves, Dr. Mervitz. Indeed. Indeed. But uh, so if a person comes to me and they're concerned about something, we will always look. But sometimes all I can say to them is I can only tell you what it's not, not what it is. Because there is this large lifestyle component. And I think this is, it's becoming more and more a prominent feature of my practice is trying to assist people with lifestyle modifications, you know, healthy diets, exercise, mental well-being. And uh, there are a number of other strategies. And, and that's what I, I say to a lot of people. If they come in and they tell me something is not right, but the blood work is all normal, then we have to look elsewhere. We have to do more. It's not just about allopathic medicine, take this pill. It's about reevaluating the person as a whole because there is an interplay between environment, lifestyle, people's well-being, and how they, how, they, how they feel. And though our tests would pick up abnormalities when they are largely discrepant, so, you know, major abnormalities in thyroid function, subtle things will be missed. And that doesn't imply disease, but it means that that person needs to go out and do the hard work. There's no pull to fix this. There's a lifestyle change. Big lifestyle change. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at all the different. All right, so you said you've you've got this pituitary. That's the conductor of the orchestra. Who's the orchestra? So you've got your thyroid, which would be, you yeah. know, maybe your brass section. So the, yeah. <laughs> so the thyroid will control basal metabolic rate, how fast your body functions. That's why in excess everything spe- everything speeds up, in deficiency everything slows down. Uh, another another. Uh, or perhaps the wind section, I'm not sure, would be your adrenal glands. So those those will secrete a number of hormones, the most important one being cortisol. Cortisol is the major stress hormone in the body. We have to have cortisol. Obviously, when it's in excess, that's a bad thing. Cortisol mobilizes sugar, so in excess it can cause diabetes. It breaks down muscle to use as a fuel, so in excess people will lose muscle mass. And a whole, whole host of other symptoms and, and pathologies in, in excess. Deficiency is equally um, as deleterious because... If we don't have cortisol, we can't respond to stressful stimuli, and uh, that can also present with catastrophic consequences, something called an Addisonian crisis, for example. So that would be the adrenal gland. In terms of growth hormone, the pituitary secretes growth hormone. That goes to the liver, where it induces the production of a hormone called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, and that controls growth in normal ways. It also has metabolic effects, Um, and so it's the major driver of of skeletal growth, linear growth in children. But growth hormones... Excellent for us, isn't it? Isn't that why we, we exercise? Yes, but in excess. Well, aside from the other reasons, but it's one of the reasons that we exercise. It does help stimulate. Growth. Yeah, it, it stimulates growth hormone. But like anything, too much of a good thing is a bad thing, right? And so excess growth hormone is is a problem. It causes acromegaly, as I mentioned, in, in adults. And this is a, a condition that can be, or can be fatal, but um, it presents with hypertension, diabetes. Uh, once we Once we complete our growth, the only growth plates that remain open are the hands, feet, and face. So people may get skeletal abnormalities or deformities, quote-unquote, which has a characteristic appearance. So we can often spot an acromegalic just by looking at them, but um, they may also have arthritis, this increased incidence of coronary artery disease and heart failure. So an excess growth hormone is not a good thing. We can't bring that on ourselves no. by exercise. No. That no. would be something that is happening mechanically in our body that is changing. That's related changing. in the vast majority of cases to a small growth in the pituitary, a tumor. 
So it's not something that someone's going to cause just by exercising. In fact, there's really no good reason not to exercise unless someone really has a proper medical problem. Exercise. That's, that's the, <laughs> there's one takeaway message from this, uh, this hour. It's exercise, exercise and eat healthy. Yes. <laughs> What's interesting is, is how walking is being found to be better than running. Interesting. It is interesting. Okay. So when, maybe, maybe what we should do is look at all the different elements or, or illnesses, the diseases, and just do an analysis of, of each one. So the first one is obviously fertility. It's something that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the impact of a faulty endocrine system or things that can go wrong with the endocrine system that will prevent fertility. Right. So fertility is a very complex issue because the hormonal implications or hormonal, uh, let's say, causes of fertility are only one small part of what may cause infertility. So there could be anatomical issues as well. There could be factors that we can't diagnose. But certainly endocrinology plays a major role there. So in women, uh, a common cause of subfertility might be something like polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is an extremely common condition, one of the commonest conditions of women in the reproductive years. Abnormal thyroid function can also contribute to infertility. And so when a couple or a woman presents with this problem, we are obligated to do these tests to ensure that there's nothing there that we can potentially correct to assist with the fertility. But it's important not to forget that in some series, some cases, up to a third of the causes are, or a third of the causes of infertility may be male factor related. So the numbers vary, 5% to about 33%, but men may have the, may have an issue as well. That could be azoospermia, so issues with spermatic production or function. There may be testosterone issues there as well. There may be certain genetic disorders. There's a condition called Kleinefelter syndrome, which is really common, but underdiagnosed in, or we say really common. It's not uncommon, but underdiagnosed in men. And that can result in faulty spermatic production. These are all things we need to, to bear in mind. So when a couple presents with an infertility issue, the first thing we have to do is say, okay, how long have you been trying to conceive? The general, the generally accepted definition is 12 months of regular intercourse without conception. Though many of us will not wait that long. If it's been about six months without conception, we would then say, let's start screening for, for any potential causes for infertility. And the let's, when I say let us, it could be an endocrinologist, it could be a gynecologist, could be a GP with a particular interest in this field. But it should be someone who deals with these problems. And that would involve in the woman a gynecological examination, an ultrasound, a hysteroselpingogram, something to show that the anatomy is right. Then we would do the hormonal studies, look to make sure there's no ovulation disorders or anything like that, exclude polycystic ovarian syndrome, and if it's present, treat it. Check the thyroid in, in women. That can be a very common cause for, for infertility. Small changes in the thyroid we sometimes see. When we just correct that, conception occurs. So these are things we need to check. Obviously, Isn't that amazing, though, that uh, you, know, you might not need to go for that long fertility treatment? Yeah. And, I mean, small changes make big differences when it comes to the endocrine system. What are the symptoms of polycystic ovarian, what did you say? Syndrome. Syndrome. Yeah. There we go. So it's it's... It's a syndrome, so there may be multiple manifestations of it, and we rely on something called the Rotterdam criteria to make the diagnosis. These criteria are important because they also help us think of the symptoms. So the criteria would be features of anovulatory cycles, meaning that a woman doesn't ovulate with every cycle. Clinically, that can manifest with prolonged menstrual cycles or no menstruation, amenorrhea, they don't menstruate. That would be one criterion. 
the other two criteria would be a characteristic polycystic ovarian picture on a transvaginal ultrasound. So the gynecologist would have to do an internal ultrasound, and then we need to see a certain number of cysts within an ovary, an ovary of a certain volume. Um, so obviously this is not an investigation that we routinely do on women, uh, particularly women that have not had intercourse. So that often is uh, done only when necessary, or it's done as part of a regular examination and picked up that way. And then the final feature would be features of hyperandrogenism, excess male hormones. So biochemically, we can pick it up with testosterone levels that are elevated, but clinically, women may present with hirsutism, so excess hairiness, which is out of keeping for their ethnicity and their family. Things like acne may also present there. When there's cases of severe virilization, meaning features that make a woman become like a man, deepening of the voice, increased muscle, then we start looking beyond polycystic ovarian syndrome. So any of these three criteria, and two of these three criteria would be necessary to to establish a diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome. With that, large numbers, um, anywhere from 2 to 85% of people, of women with PCOS, may have obesity. So often we see weight as one of the major reasons that brings the woman to the attention of the healthcare provider. We also might see insulin resistance or prediabetes as part of this as well. So these are all things we look at and we screen at. And then once we've established a diagnosis, we would go ahead and treat. And treatment will depend on if this woman wants to conceive or if she's not keen to conceive at this stage. Because the first line therapy is the combined oral contraceptive pill. Naturally, if she wants to conceive, she can't be on the pill. So then we would look for second line therapies. While we're talking about women and women's hormones, um, hormone replacement therapy, is it still the same technology that we were using 30, 40 years ago? Yeah, maybe, cha- <clears throat> Pardon me. maybe changing delivery systems has changed, but essentially the principles remain the same. Estrogen and progesterone, if necessary, meaning if a woman has not had a hysterectomy, uh, she can't have unopposed estrogen replacement therapy, so we would give her progesterone as well to protect the uterus, to prevent the onset of uterine cancer. So the ways we give it may vary. There can be pills, there can be patches, there can be gels and creams and things like that, but the principles remain the same. And there has been a change in the approach to hormone replacement therapy. For many years, hormone replacement therapy was out. It was verboten. We didn't use it because there was a large study that was um, the results of which were available in the late 90s, early 2000s, called the Women's Health Initiative. And this flagged a number of safety issues with with hormone replacement therapy. Yeah, wasn't it linked to to clots? To clots, right? Called cancer and uh, heart disease and a number of things like that. Subsequently, that that evidence has been reviewed and it's been shown that, in fact, those adverse events were over-reported and there are major benefits to hormone replacement therapy. Now, that's not to say that every postmenopausal woman needs HRT. When there's an indication, it's a good thing to use. So if someone has crippling vasomotor symptoms, so the hot flushes are really in- interfering with her, with her well-being, or if there are some other features, um, it may be localized uh, problems in the genitourinary system, things like that, we would then start her on HRT. But it, it's not an absolute necessity. Women should be allowed to make the choice if they want it or not. I'm Kathy Kaler. This is the Discam Medical Monday. My guest is Dr. Brad Mervitz. He is an endocrinologist. He practices at the Donald Gordon Medical Center. And we're looking at the body's endocrine system. We're talking about hormones. One of the questions that I certainly have for you is animals also secrete hormones. If you eat an animal, is there a chance that you are ingesting hormones from an animal? And I ask this in light of 
people, you know, women I know who are going through menopause, the minute they have meat, they start having hot flushes. That's interesting. I, I would think that if they're eating meat rich in hormones, that, that would help the hot flushes because they're getting estrogen, which, which treats hot flushes. It depends what the hormone is, I yeah, suppose. I suppose. <laughs> so the, the evidence is a bit sketchy at this point. There's, there is a lot being said, particularly amongst alternative medical practitioners, functional medicine practitioners, that kind of uh, thing, that where, where there is a concern of animal, animal hormones affecting humans. And there's a lot of research going into something called endocrine disruptors, which are environmental contaminants that can impact on endocrine function in humans. And these have been well documented. But the question of animal hormones is not clear at this stage. Uh, there are some people who have had, <coughs> pardon me, who have had hormone-sensitive cancers who are very reluctant to take certain foods unless they know for sure that there are no hormones in that. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to do, though I can't say that I've seen double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials showing that animal hormones taken in food would impact on endocrine function. Oh, a big one, though, that actually does have the science is soya. You probably know that that's a hormone disruptor. Yeah, so it's it's also not clear. There's conflicting evidence both ways. Yeah. In fact, there there has been some work done to show benefit from soya. There's been some work done to show detriment from soya. So the jury is still out on that at this stage. That's interesting. I think it was France, Denmark, and Israel. You're not allowed to give your child soya under the age of three, I mean, which I, I, th I find that fascinating. It is, it's a phytoestrogen, so it's a plant-based estrogen, which can potentially affect that and may be considered um, an endocrine disruptor. But as I said, there is some data to, to show benefit as well. Like most things, it's very difficult. This is why we rely on large meta-analyses and things to actually give us the information we need. Yeah. My guest is Dr. Brad Mervitz. He's an endocrinologist. If you've got any questions, then you are welcome to send them through. 34519. 34519. That's the text line. Those SMSs are charged at 1.50. You can also send a telegram. And that number is 061-895-1019. Send them through now because you never know. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's look at uh, other stories about hormones and how hormones affect us. Let's talk about diabetes. We've touched on it a number of times. So diabetes. So this is the biggest part of what I do day to day. You know, in South Africa... Well, it's epidemic proportions, no? Yeah. In South Africa, it's estimated there are about 4.5 million diabetics, type 2 diabetics, about half of whom are undiagnosed at this stage. So we're in the epidemic of diabetes in South Africa. And I always say the face of malnutrition in South Africa is not the old idea of Africa with a starving child and a vulture hovering over it. It's obesity. And so that really is the epidemic that we, you know, the long-term epidemic. The short-term epidemic has been the virus. The long-term is this diabetes and coronary artery disease that follows. Okay, the relationship between obesity and diabetes, what is it? It is the leading cause of type 2 diabetes. The, How? Why? So on a pathophysiological mechanism... Obesity causes the deposition of fat in abnormal sites in the body. I'm just going to simplify. It's quite a complex topic. But essentially what happens is that fat secretes a host of active, um, uh, let's call them chemicals, that inhibit the, inhibit the body's ability to respond to normal insulin levels, what we call insulin resistance, 
When this gets deposited in the pancreas, it also inhibits the body of the, the, the ability of the pancreas to secrete insulin. Okay, so translation for my five five year old brain is that when you are obese, your body will store fat in places that you wouldn't normally have fat. Right. It doesn't only make your your organs less efficient, but that fat itself, that also, the fat itself, actually. Has uh, a detrimental yes. effect. Yes. 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 And it worsens everything. So insulin acts like a key in the body. It opens a lock to allow glucose to enter cells and the cells to use that glucose. When there's insulin resistance, that lock and key mechanism doesn't work. You can't get the glucose into the cells. The body overcomes this by making more insulin. And in the short term, that increase in insulin is enough to make sure that the glucose levels remain stable. But insulin is also anabolic. It builds tissues. So as you're secreting more insulin, you're building more body tissue because there's no resistance to that that particular function of insulin. And that muscle, that, that tissue that's being built is predominantly fat. And in the skin, we see it with something called acanthosis nigricans, a darkening or velvetiness of the skin that may occur on the back of the neck or in the creases of the body and other features. And so as more insulin is secreted, more fat is stored, which results in the secretion of more chemicals, making more insulin resistance. And eventually, the ability of the pancreas to secrete insulin is overwhelmed, and so we'll start to see glucose levels rise. Initially, a patient will become pre-diabetic, which is a combination of two conditions, either impaired fasting glucose, where the sugar levels are higher after fasting than what is normal, or impaired glucose tolerance, where after a meal, the sugar levels are higher than what we expect. And then ultimately, this will progress to type 2 diabetes. At that point, we've seen a major increase in the risk of coronary artery disease, and adverse outcomes, that's why we use that as the threshold for diabetes. It's otherwise an arbitrary number that we use diagnostically. But we see that there's an increase in the target organ damage that occurs. Can type 2 diabetes be reversed? Yes. In the early stages with aggressive lifestyle intervention, weight loss and diet, it is possible to reverse diabetes. That's great news. Yes, it is. But the problem is it's hard work. The studies that have been done have shown a 500-calorie-a-day diet can reverse diabetes. But most people will be quite miserable living on 500 calories a day. Bariatric surgery has also shown the ability to reverse diabetes. So it is possible, but it takes a lot of commitment and work on the part of the person with the diabetes to, to do this. What are the symptoms of pre-diabetes? There may be none. Pre-diabetes, there may be none. Really? So, yeah. So often people might have a sugar level done for another reason or they're a bit concerned because maybe they notice that they're putting on weight or obese or whatever it might be. And so it's picked up then. In fact, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, may have no symptoms in the early stages as well. We know that... Even craving sugar or sugary things. No, nothing. Wow. About uh, the majority... Uh, it, it's estimated that the average person has had diabetes for about 10 years before they diagnosed. Now, these days we're not seeing those exact numbers because people are screening more, more commonly or having blood tests done for other reasons more commonly. But certainly when I was doing my fellowship, and that's not that long ago, these were the statistics. And so it can take years and years before a person actually picks up that they've got that. The classical symptoms of excessive thirst, excessive urination, unexplained weight loss and fatigue, that occurs only when the sugar levels have been above 10 for a prolonged period. And then the body starts to break down its body tissues because it can no longer, the, the insulin can't work. So you have to use fat and muscle as a fuel source because you can't use the glucose even though the glucose is high in the, in the body. And so in the early stages, there may be no signs. And that's why if someone has a strong family history or an underlying, you know, risk for diabetes, if they've had, if a woman's had gestational diabetes or they're from a, an ethnic group that's at particularly high risk, then they may consider screening. 
Um, although there are no classic, there are no guideline recommendations for screening. It's not a, it's not an unreasonable thing to do if a person is at high risk. One would think that there would be guidelines. No, there are Con- guidelines. Considering the huge impact that it is having on health systems and healthcare systems around the world. Absolutely. It costs an absolute fortune. The, the, the thing is, when they look at screening um, as a recommendation, they have to look at the complete cost on a population-based level. And so they can't justify the cost at this stage. But certainly in those people who have a very high risk, in those people it would be a recommended thing to do. But a population-based, we wouldn't recommend screening for diabetes. You spoke about excess thirst, that, but that could also be a symptom of hypothyroidism as well. Isn't it? It could be a symptom of being outside on a hot day. So it, you have to look at the company it Perspective. keeps. Perspective. Yeah. So we, we always say look at the company it keeps because the, the excess thirst comes as a result of the excess urination. So what happens is when the sugar is above 10, it starts to appear in the urine. That draws out more fluid. There's excess urination, and then that will cause the thirst. And so we always look at the company a symptom keeps. All right. So let's talk about uh, the thyroid disorder. So you've got your thyroid gland in your in your throat. In your neck. Okay, in your neck. Okay, what does it do? I mean, you did say that it secretes some hormones, but is, is that all it does? Yeah, so the thyroid secretes two, two hormones that are of major significance, what we call FT3, free T3, and FT4, free T4. T3 and T4 are the thyroid hormones that will ultimately control the basal metabolic rate. So all body tissues have receptors for thyroid hormone. And so thyroid hormone will exert an effect in every body tissue, the heart and the lung and the fat and the liver and the brain and everywhere, right? And so obviously an abnormality here will impact every organ. And so the symptoms are pretty classical. You know, now I had a, I had a, a lecturer in university who said diseases don't read textbooks. So not everyone will present with every symptom, but generally there will be some, except in patients over 65 years of age, we sometimes see atypical symptoms. And so... When thyroid hormone is in excess, that's where there's an increase in basal metabolic rate and palpitations and, and um, tachycardia, so increased heart rate, weight loss, increased bowel habits. Women may experience uh, a lengthening and lightening of their periods. Uh, irritability or agitation may occur as well. As opposed to hypothyroidism, as I mentioned, weight gain, uh, constipation, uh, heavier periods in women, which may become more frequent as well. Um, some many people experience a cognitive fog as if they can't think clearly. Uh, hair loss may be may be a common occurrence. Speeding as well. up versus slowing down. Absolutely, that's basically that's it. That's it. Yeah, and the treatment is is pretty straightforward. We obviously have to get to the underlying cause of it. Hypothyroidism and underactive thyroid. The treatments are generally the same the same across the board. Give thyroid hormone. Um, an overactive thyroid, hyperthyroidism, can have multiple causes, and so it's important to know what the cause is because that will dictate the particular treatment we might give to that person. How much control do we have on the rate of our metabolism without medication? So it is possible to, to make small changes in terms of a healthy lifestyle. Certain foods that we eat, doing exercise certainly can help that. Um, but it's not, it's, not, it's not something we can put our minds to and change you know, through, the, through the sheer force of will or... Maybe so what, what foods would be good for, for a metabolism that you uh, want to speed up? What I mean by that is it's sensible food choices. Yes. So people who eat poor quality foods, refined carbohydrates, excessive junk, junk food, that kind of stuff, um, will generally experience a slowing of their metabolic rate. There's weight gain associated with that as well. There's a more sedentary lifestyle associated. It's usually part of a whole lifestyle choice. People that eat healthier foods generally will be more active, leaner, that kind of thing. They'll, they'll be able to, uh, they'll experience a, a higher metabolic rate. But there is a large component of metabolic rate that is genetically predetermined. 
It's very difficult to do anything about that. So some people are just prone to calorie retention. And yeah. that may be a genetic thing in that they have genes coding for that. Or it can be as a result of environmental stimuli that result in certain genes being expressed that under normal circumstances wouldn't have been. So it's not a, it's not a mutation, but it's that they've had pressure, environmental pressure, causing those genes to be expressed, what we call epigenetics. And then that will result in calorie retention and a greater propensity towards maintaining fat and more difficulty in losing weight. So there certainly are differences in people in terms of the ability to lose and gain weight. That may be genetic, but that doesn't mean we don't advise the lifestyle modification still. What's your feeling on GL and GI diets, low GL and low GI diets? Because, I mean, you, you, one would think, you know, eat a potato, you know, a boiled potato. It's healthy, but actually it's your body's going to process it and make it into sugar. So it's not necessarily so. So uh, it depends a lot on the person because if a person is otherwise healthy with no underlying metabolic issues, no comorbid illnesses, a, a, a diet in moderation is perfectly fine for them. Someone with more metabolic, someone in more metabolic extremists will need perhaps a more extreme diet. And in those people with a lot of insulin resistance or diabetes, we do advise certain dietary changes. Certainly there, low GI diets would be recommended. When you look at head-to-head studies of high-fat, low-carb diet and high-carb, low-fat diets, which in theory would make a difference because the high-carb diet we would think would increase insulin resistance, hasn't been shown to actually make a difference. And we know by six months, the weight loss, irrespective of the diet, provided this calorie restriction, will be the same. But some people do better on one than another, and that's through trial and error. So we can't be too dogmatic about things. Everyone should eat a sensible diet. Some people might need to be slightly more extreme one way or the other, and that, that each person has to kind of see for themselves. My guest is endocrinologist Dr. Brad Mervitz. If you've got any questions, we're going to be wrapping up in a little while, so... If you've got questions and you don't want to pay for a consultation, then now would be your time to send through your questions. And this is how you need to do it. 34519. That is the SMS line. I'm going to say it again. 34519. Those SMSs are charged at 1 Rand 50. You can also send through a message on Telegram, and that number is 061 895 I'm Kathy Kayla. This is the Discam Medical Monday, and we're talking about key reasons to see an endocrinologist. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. I'm Kathy Kayla, and thank you so much for joining me this morning. I do apologize for the croakiness in my voice, but I am... This is this is the tail end of flu that arrived a week ago. My guest this morning is Dr. Brad Mervitz. He's an endocrinologist. And Diana Levy, morning, Diana. Nice to, to uh, hear from you. She says, have you moved your offices to Donald Gordon? No, so I'm still based at Mill Park, uh, Nekke Mill Park Hospital, and the Vitz Donald Gordon Medical Center. I have rooms in both hospitals. How do you manage that? They're close enough for me to run between, and I split my time 50-50. Uh, one of the perks of endocrinology is that you don't have patients that are too sick in the wards. So I, I'm not neglecting ward patients. I can run between the two. Okay, well, that's good to know. Why would an endocrinology – I mean, it may sound like a silly question, but I'm curious. Why would you have somebody in a ward? I mean, I, I, as I'm explaining you – as I'm understanding how you're explaining is that most of the treatments are about – 
regulating hormones. You know, so those are pills, those are tablets, those are, you know. Right. So there are a few endocrine emergencies, emergencies of diabetes, for example, okay. diabetic ketoacidosis where the sugars are very high, or hyposmolarcomas, um, hypoglycemia, severe low sugar can also be an issue. And then in terms of other hormonal issues, uh, there's something, a very rare condition called a thyroid storm where there's an excess of thyroid hormone. This is very rare and infrequently seen. Um, but it is sometimes, uh, pa- patients do need to be admitted for that. Additionally, there may be crises of the adrenal glands. As I've mentioned, an underactive adrenal gland can present with an Addisonian crisis. But often I just get consulted to assist with glycemic control, sugar control in the wards. So I'll be helping out other doctors in terms of managing the sugar levels. We know that uncontrolled sugar levels in patients admitted for other issues are a predictor of poor outcome. So we do try and monitor those and manage that uh, to a certain target. Uh, endocrinology may also deal with certain electrolyte abnormalities, high calcium, low sodium, things like that. So it's not uncommon for me to be called to assist or admit patients with those disorders. So there may be a number of, of reasons that I'd see a patient. Sometimes uh, we'd have patients admitted for another reason and they're, uh, you know, they have obesity. And so for an opinion on how to help manage the obesity, I'd be called for that. So I do, I do um, have a number of patients in the wards, and I do consult with them daily, you know, in terms of consultations uh, to assist other doctors, or I've admitted them myself. Has there been a connection drawn between hypoglycemia and depression? Well, someone who, who experiences frequent hypoglycemic episodes will almost certainly be depressed about it because they feel horrendous with the low sugar. Now, it's important to differentiate between actual hypoglycemia um, and a perceived hypoglycemia because the symptoms may overlap. And then within hypoglycemia itself, we have to know, is this a primary disorder of the pancreas? Is there, for example, something called an insulin, an insulinoma that's secreting excess insulin uh, versus what's called reactive hypoglycemia? Reactive hypoglycemia is usually related to, to diet, um, the type of foods that we eat, or the way the stomach empties can also cause symptoms very much in keeping with hypoglycemia. And you know, the recommendations for reactive hypoglycemia are to adjust the diet and the way we eat. But I can tell you, and it's anecdotal, but I've got a number of patients whose lives are crippled by, by reactive hypoglycemia. It's not as simple as just changing the diet. That, that has to be done, but it can be a very difficult uh, condition, a very unsatisfying condition to manage um, because some people are so severely affected. The average person... What are the symptoms? So if you've ever felt hungry... Sweating, palpitations, a little bit irritable, you know, you're seeking food. It's like that, but worse. So and more is it extreme. all the time? No, it's often related to, you know, uh, eating certain meals. So you'd eat a certain meal, and within a predetermined amount of time after that, they would start to experience those symptoms. That's in reactive hypoglycemia. In an insulinoma, which is insulin-mediated hypoglycemia, that's more often a fasting hypoglycemia. And the problem with this is that they may drop their sugars to dangerously low levels, which is not the common thing with reactive hypoglycemia, though they feel horrendous when the sugars go down. And in insulinomas, we see that, and this is true of diabetics who experience hypoglycemia as well, one severe episode of hypoglycemia is enough to blunt a person's ability to sense a subsequent episode for up to six weeks, meaning that the earliest sign of the hypoglycemia may be a coma. So it's something that has to be taken seriously and managed you know, pretty efficiently and treated because it can be it can be a fatal thing if left untreated. Reactive hypoglycemia is very rarely, if ever, fatal, but it certainly has a major impact on morbidity and the patient's sense of well-being. So when people are suffering from 
low energy levels, right? They need to eat lots of snacks throughout the day to keep their energy levels up. Could that be a sign of hyperglycemia? It could be, but one would also need to look at the type of food that's being eaten because it's not uncommon for people with insulin resistance to uh, have sugary foods, which then spikes the insulin even further, causes, and then drops, them. drops it down, yeah. and then it's a cycle like that. So the type of food being eaten needs to be looked at. And again, you have to look at the context of the person. You know, fatigue is an extremely common complaint worldwide. And unfortunately, the, the list of causes of fatigue is as long as my arm. So we have to look at all these things. And it's, it is clear that you know, poor diet or an inappropriate diet can cause these symptoms. And so sometimes the, the easiest thing to do is adjust the diet and people may have um, an immediate response and a major improvement for that. If not, we have to look at other potential causes and treatments. Unsigned asking you a question, Dr. Mervitz. Uh, hi, is it true that cholesterol levels should be below 5? We generally would say, and obviously cholesterol is a topic of some controversy at the moment given given the opinions of certain healthcare providers with regards to their significance. But the, the weight of evidence we have at this stage is that for the average person at low risk, we'd be happy with a total cholesterol below 5 and an LDL bad cholesterol below 3. But a cholesterol of 5.2, for example, may not mean that there's an increased risk because the HDL good cholesterol component may be very high with a normal LDL. So a total cholesterol that's used as a screening test is just that. It's just a screening test. If it's elevated, one has to have a full lipogram done and look at the parameters there. And then we evaluate risk, we evaluate the individual, the age, all these kinds of things to see, does this person require therapy or not? Interesting. Okay, so let's go through symptoms that could be indicative of needing to see an endocrinologist. And we're going to do this as our as our wrap-up. Okay, so if you have the following, you might need to see an endocrinologist. So I think the first thing is, as we discussed with diabetes, excessive thirst, excessive urination, unexplained weight loss and fatigue. For diabetes, absolutely. One could even see the GP for that, but that is an, a possible alert. A change in weight without a change in lifestyle is also something that might alert one. So whether it's weight loss or weight gain. Now, unexplained weight loss can have a whole host of causes, but endocrine, endocrine causes are amongst them. A young person with high blood pressure should probably seek uh, an endocrinologist because a number of endocrine conditions can cause hypertension, particularly in young people. So uh, a finding of that may, may necessitate it. Young people with osteoporosis or a fracture, an unexplained fracture, should seek an endocrinologist as well. We haven't discussed osteoporosis, but it's not common for young people to fracture. And if they do, when I say fracture, I don't mean in a motorbike accident. I mean a fall from standing height or a low-impact fracture. That may necessitate further investigation. Um, as I said, a general sense of, of unwellness that's inexplicable. Don't want to overwhelm the endocrinologist because, you know, stop, stop 10 people in the street and eight of them will have some kind of feeling like that. Sure. But if there are other symptoms accompanying that, then they may need to see that. Uh, and so often the GPs can do screening tests for it and then refer on if necessary. Okay, so those are the things to look out for. Well, I want to thank you because I need to now come and see you. You know, every time I do a Disco Medical Monday, whatever it is we are discussing, I am convinced by the time I walk out this door that I have it. Prostate, discussing prostate problems was definitely a very interesting episode. <laughs> Anyhow, Dr. Brad Mervitz, thank you very, very much for thank making your time and your knowledge and just your generosity of spirit and sharing the information with us. Thank you for being available. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure.
So uh, endocrinologist Dr. Brad Mervitz. You'll find him at the Donald Gordon Medical Center and at Netcare. Mill Park. <laughs> Just saying. We don't want to make <laughs> any freed lands <laughs> unhappy. This has been Discam Medical Monday. I'll be back on your radio next Monday. Thank you so much for your time and for joining me. Thank you for all of your questions. And I wish you a wonderful, a healthy, and a safe week. Look after yourself. God bless. Bye.